Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you support the mission of Studs and you dig the program, I got an easy way for you to show your support. Just head over to patreon.com studs. You'll find the link in the show notes. I offer a range of rewards for your support. You can get some cool stuff for like 50 cents per episode. No pressure. You're always welcome to take the free ride. But you're also welcome to do a little part to keep studs going strong. And I want to take a hot minute to shout out to a new studs patron, Oskar Tiller of beautiful Berlin, Germany. Oskar, your financial contribution is very much appreciated. But so were your kind words. I'm so grateful that you support what I'm trying to do over here. I'm so grateful that you identify with my effort to try to magnify the voices of working people if for no other reason as a means to at least compete with the voices of politicians and celebrities that seem to dominate this space. We're on the same page, man. Thanks for your support. I'm truly grateful. And my dear listener, if you're not in a position to patronize this project, I totally get it. You're welcome to take the free ride. No complaints over here. But maybe you could be so kind as to show your support by leaving a rating or leaving a review. Here's what you could do. Just tell a friend or two about studs. Listen, you copy the link of your favorite episode, you shoot it to them in a text message and say you should totally listen to this. It's different. It's worth it. And this episode is different. And this episode is totally worth listening to because this episode of Studs features my conversation with Monsieur Julian G. Julian is a concierge at a magnificent five-star superior hotel in the heart of my fair city, beautiful Berlin. Part therapist, part historian, part parent, Julian is a tireless friend to well-heeled guests who demand the best. He walks us through the work it takes to architect a perfect Berlin experience for guests with deep pockets and, at times, idiosyncratic expectations. Please join me in conversation with this esteemed member of Les Clés de Or and find out why he's so passionate about his job. Julian G., Welcome to Studs. You are a concierge at a five-star superior hotel in the historic heart of beautiful Berlin, Germany. How do you describe what you do? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on here. It's a real honor. And uh, yeah, to get into it, a concierge. Historically, the concierge was kind of like the dapper guy when you walked into the hotel and he had these little golden keys on the side and he was there to help you with everything that the reception couldn't really do. Kind of like a jack-of-all-trades, master of quite a few things, actually, to manipulate the old adage. Um, I'm a person of trust in an unfamiliar, faraway land. Uh, I'm a bit of a historian, a bit of a personal assistant, a bit of a parent sometimes, that's for sure. Um, sometimes I'm a bit of a therapist as well. 
and mostly I'm the guy who just gets things done. And essentially, I'm kind of like the, um, a luxury hotel's fixer, so to say. Well, I want to get into all of those things, the historian role, the parent role, the therapist role. I want to learn about all the things you get done. But before I do, can you talk to me about how you got on this path? Like, talk about your training and what got you here? Uh, to be honest, I really, I fell into it. Becoming a concierge is not really so much of a thing. I think most people like actively decide to do, at least not in contemporary society. I think back in maybe the 20th century or so, or even the 19th century, in the kind of like the age of grand hotels, people would aspire to be a concierge. But nowadays, you know, with education and universities and people going for degrees, um, you don't really see this starting from the bottom and working your way through to the top in these like traditional jobs. So essentially, in 2013, um, I came back to Berlin after being away for a while. Um, I had briefly studied in Madrid, Spain. Um, had to unfortunately stop my studies because, yeah, it was financially just not viable anymore. It's just, it's incredibly expensive. So I came back to, you know, my hometown and I figured, man, what the hell could I do? You know, I didn't have a real degree, nothing to really use. And I thought, okay, I applied to some random job application. It was like a hotel um, near my old apartment that was looking for like a bartender. It was a completely ridiculous decision. And I figured, hey, you know, I've had a few beverages in my time. I could be a bartender. (laughs) It's good thinking. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was very optimistic. You know, obviously I never heard back from them. But then I thought maybe the hotel line is not such a bad idea. And um, I had no real connection to the hotel like world. So then I figured, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to you know do it the kosher way, and I'm going to do you know what we call in Germany an Ausbildung, so an actual officially sponsored apprenticeship. And there's no direct translation for it in English, but it's called the Hotel Fachmann. So essentially, someone who is you know knowledgeable in the realm of everything that is a hotel. So I applied for the Ausbildung in 2014 in April. Um, I applied to a few hotels, um, I got a few nays, and then eventually um, I got a yay from the current hotel that I work at, um, and just dove into it. And that's kind of where the journey began. And becoming a concierge did not establish itself until way, way later. Because when you go into a, a Ausbildung, you essentially do everything that exists in the world of the hotel. So you go into the restaurant, breakfast service, you know, dinner service, lunch, you do banqueting, you do kind of like really interesting stuff like the back of house as well too. Like when you have a huge event and you have to organize, you know, 400 little tiny plates, you know, do all the orders and stuff for the actual supplies that are necessary in the hotel. So you really go through a broad spectrum of things in this world. And it wasn't until I think maybe my second year, it's always three years in total with the option of being able to shorten it, you know, if your grades are good in this kind of like vocational school where they teach you a bunch of extra stuff as well too. Um, and that's exactly what I did. But it wasn't until fairly late in my Ausbildung that I was actually given the opportunity to um, go into the concierge position. And the concierge means both working directly at the desk as a concierge, but it's mostly working as what we call a porter or portier. Often, especially in North America, they use the word bellboy or bellhop, which is 
I think a little bit degrading in Europe from from the way I see it. Um, I think Potier or Porter has a little bit more of a ring to it. Yeah, for sure. That was my first experience at the concierge. I knew what a concierge was, but I didn't really know exactly what they do and how much of a behemoth this job actually is until I was like in the actual department. But like even being a porter was where I really fell in love with it, and I realized like, man, this is like what I could do. And that's essentially my first experience. And then I finished my Ausbildung and I got offered a position in the same department. And about a half a year into being in the department as a full-time employee, I had completed my, my apprenticeship and everything like that. That's when they asked me if I wanted to become an actual concierge and work full-time at the desk. So I essentially kind of fell into it. And as far as I know from most of the concierge that I've spoken to, it's very, very similar path. I, I haven't met one concierge that I know now who said, you know, kind of like popped out of the uterus and was like, I want to be a concierge. <laughs> it just, it doesn't really happen like that anymore. So um, I feel that my growth into this position and into this world was fairly organic and fairly natural. I don't really feel bad about, you know, just kind of like plopping into it. You know, perhaps these types of evolutionary processes, those which you would describe as organic, are perhaps the most interesting to dive into. And what I want to dive into right here is the most important thing that you said, which you happen to mention rather casually. Can you talk about how and why you fell in love with the role of the concierge? Yeah, I think I remember my first day in the hotel. And this is from someone who had never worked in a restaurant, never carried food, had literally zero experience with it. And it was in the breakfast service. So it was 4.30 in the morning, an ungodly hour to like be up. <laughs> you know, I still have this trauma, this almost like PTSD of the smell of like freshly baked croissants. Like when I walk around Mitte, like if I smell that, I just like instantly get reminded of my apprenticeship time and the internship time as well too. Yeah. And so I figured, my God, what did I do? Um, I don't know how the hell I'm going to survive this. It wasn't until very late that I actually saw this other side. You know, you're constantly surrounded what we call F&B, food and beverage. So you're slaying in food, you're taking up orders, and you're running around and you can't smell eggs anymore. And you, that little ding when the, the cook says service, you know, you hear it in your nightmares. Yeah. I was in the lobby, you know, it was, I was wearing the porter uniform and it was, it was like the most relaxing experience ever because I realized like I don't actually like taking orders and like I don't like hearing what people want to eat and then having to go get it for them. <laughs> You know, with the, with the utmost of respect to the people who do that, it's a tough job. Yeah. But I just liked wearing the, the uniform, and I realized that my favorite thing about breakfast or banqueting was talking to the guests and just kind of like, you know, exchanging anecdotes and kind of like a witty banter here and there. Because, you know, even in a luxurious environment, people are pretty chill, and there's a lot of really, really cool people that you meet. You know, and while I'm talking to people and I'm standing at the breakfast buffet, you know, my superiors are like, you know, you have like six orders you need to bring out. You know, you should stop talking so much. And being at the concierge, I was able to do that because being a porter, you bring up luggage. Um, you're running around a lot as well, too. But a lot of the times, you know, you're entertaining the guests. You know, you're the first face that they see when they come into the hotel. They, you know, they drive their car up or they come with a taxi. They see the doorman and they're like, wow, this is, you know, this is the experience. And then you take their luggage and you ask them for their name. You welcome them. You ask them if they have any questions. You know, some people you just, you you know, you get a flow right away. You know exactly like, oh, I like this guy. You know, this is going to be a good stay. You know, they're going to be really, really nice. 
And I just like doing that. And it wasn't until the assistant head concierge kind of like pulled me over and was, asked me a few questions about me. You know, I was like, I'm from Berlin, born and raised. You know, I speak English and German fluently. And he was like, okay, well, this is pretty practical for us. You know, you have to have the language skills to work as a concierge. And he asked me if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to look over their shoulder and see what they do, maybe make a couple phone calls and so on. And the first few times that I did that, it was terrifying. I mean, it was one of the most terrifying experiences ever. And I'm a very introverted person, um, you know. So the apprenticeship really kicked it out of me. I became a little bit of an extrovert through this when necessary. And so making like phone calls to random people that I don't know and kind of acting like I knew something, which I clearly didn't at the time because I was just a <laughs> apprentice, you know. Yeah, fake it till you make it, right? It was definitely a fake it till you make it situation. And I just remember the first phone call I had to make, I had to recommend and explain a restaurant to a guest on the phone. He was fortunately not in the room. And my boss was like, just leave a message on his answering machine. So I did that, and I stuttered, and I stumbled, and I had no idea what the hell I was selling. I had never been to this restaurant before. It's a two-star Michelin restaurant. It's not something you frequent every single night, and it's certainly not something you know if you don't kind of like move around that kind of society. And then I, I left that weird message, and I hung up. And he just looks at me and he just starts laughing because it was so embarrassing. (laughs) He thought it was hilarious. And I was so embarrassed by it that I actually went up to the guest's room, deleted the message from the answering machine and pulled the plug on the phone and reinstalled the phone. Nice play. Yeah. And I raised all tracks. There was no evidence of of my ruin on there. And that was kind (laughs) of like my first experience of like, oh, God, this was terrifying. And I hoped I can do it again essentially. All right. Hey, let's dive into some of these things. You help guests to find the right restaurants for them. You also talked about uh, being a trusted historian, a parent, a therapist, an ally. Let's talk about all of the different roles that sort of come together to create this role that we're loosely calling a concierge. You know me, So let's talk about the historian role first. How is the concierge a sometimes historian? Well, you are essentially the representative for a city, you know, also for a country, for a culture. I'm a born and raised Berliner. I I say that with some kind of pride. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that as a concierge, you know, it's it's definitely, it's important, obviously, to know your city well. And I know plenty of people who would consider themselves to be Berliners who probably would still not be able to do that job at all because of the, the knowledge you're supposed to know goes beyond just like, oh, this is my favorite Italian restaurant around the corner. Or like, I know one museum in the city or something like that. The more you know about the city, the more you know the history of the city, the better you can sell the city to your guests and make the the perfect experience for them. Because, you know, if you come into Berlin thinking like, oh my God, I want Berlin to be exactly like Dubai or I want it to be exactly like, you know, London or Vienna or Tokyo or whatever, you know, you're going to be super disappointed. So understanding the history of the city kind of conveys why certain things work the way they do if that makes any sense. It does. Maybe it's just my personality as well, too, because I have met concierge who don't care about the history as much. But I always found that like any kind of historic stuff that I bring over to my guests, 
they're always very fond of it. And we get into a lot of cool conversations, especially if you meet someone who like, who knows a lot. And I don't, I don't really consider myself super, super knowledgeable in that sense. But, you know, I, but I do read books and I, because a lot of times I don't like the way things are explained. You know, you come to a city like Berlin and you just came from Vienna or, or, or Munich or something. And you have these like sprawling old towns. And we don't really have that in Berlin. We don't have an old town per se, because a lot of people don't understand like how destroyed Berlin was or how many like fires we've had throughout 750 years have just completely destroyed the city. You know, it's not even so much, you know, the bombings during World War II. It goes way, way past that as to why this is almost like a catastrophic and chaotic city. Yeah. You know, if I convey that to my guests, it just helps with their experience overall. And I have plenty of wonderful colleagues to, you know, kind of like converse with and to fact check things or to ask a lot of questions because we also deal with tour guides and stuff like that. And so it's a constant exchange of knowledge and you can't do this job if you're not interested, if you're not curious about things. I respect your curiosity. It is indeed a key to the good life. So you give them the context so that they can enjoy the content of the city. And of course, you had a splendid history teacher many, many years ago. So you were armed. The with best the pers- history teacher. <laughs> of course. You were armed with the perspicacity to do this. You're an historian. Let's check that box off. You are also a parent sometimes, you say. Explain. Oh, yeah, because... Which is funny. I don't have any kids. And I'm, I consider myself to be mostly an adult child. Um, but at work, you'd be surprised how often you have to baby people. And this is sometimes because, you know, you're dealing with so many different personalities. And in the end, all these people are human, no matter how crazy their bank accounts are or what their car is that they just drove up, they're still human beings and they have their own problems and their own neuroses and, and whatnot. So, you know, sometimes these guests come up to you and they have all of these ideas in, in, in their head, you know, they're real like visionaries, but they can't actually bring it to fruition because they're so chaotic. And sometimes you just have to be like, you know, cut the shit. Like, I'm trying to help you here. Like, let's calm down a second. Let's not get too excited over things that, you know, can be done in another day. You know, you're like kind of like a mom just running after all the kids. Like, okay, guys, you have to do this at three o'clock. You have this reservation at eight, eight o'clock. I can only push it like 15 minutes. So like, let's all be on time. And sometimes you have to take care of actual children as well, too, which is definitely not my specialty. Fortunately, I have <laughs> some really great colleagues who are really good with kids. Um, so I just kind of push them in that direction. Can I push you in a little direction? So like you, I very much enjoy traveling and it's one of the many privileges I've come to enjoy over the years. Having not been able to travel for a while as a result of this damaged pandemic, I have a reflection on my years as a traveler that I'd like to share with you and I seek some insight from you. I always saw traveling as this really relaxing thing, but in retrospect, I don't know that it was so relaxing at all. I think I'm not alone in this disposition I have to try to make traveling like perfect, right? You're spending lots of money. You did a lot of planning. You read the books. You know, I got my wife and kid in tow. This is supposed to be something special. You know, I want everything to be perfect, and I think it's supposed to be relaxing, but all of my efforts to make it just so sort of undermine my hope for it to also be relaxing. 
You know, you can have it be perfect. You can have it be relaxing, but it's really hard to make it both. I guess what I'm trying to get to is that like the very nature of traveling is exhausting. You know, new places, new sights and sounds and smells. It's exhausting. There's a lot of pressure, even though people might not recognize it. And I think it causes a lot of people to become impatient. I'm curious as to how you maintain your patience and your composure and your desire to be a kind and loving parent in light of all of the pressures that people put on themselves. Yeah, it's uh, that's something that I reflect on quite a bit because you see so many different kinds of travel personalities. And I find that especially with, you know, you know, North Americans who don't get as much vacation per year as, you know, a lot of Europeans do. I find that a lot of them are the ones who have the most packed schedules. They love itineraries. They will go through a guidebook and they want to do every single thing that is on there. They want to get the most of the entire experience. And a lot of times they're only there for like three days. And Berlin is a massive city. And I always find that the guests get the most out of their stay when they just calm down a little bit. And they realize, you know, they don't have to do everything. The, you know, the best of the, the laissez-faire kind of couples who come in and they're like, you know, just recommend something. We got no plans, you know. We're here. We want to have fun, you know. Just throw some stuff at us, you know. And they're the ones who kind of like, they, you know, they sail off into the sunset when they leave the hotel. And they're like, oh, my God, we had the best time. And then you have, you know, the families with, you know, two kids. Maybe there's an aunt with them as well, too. And they're just, you know, it's a huge checkoff. They're just trying to get through as much stuff as possible. And I think that's when the kind of like disappointment sets in. That's when the impatience kind of sets in. And that's where I have to kind of control my composure as well, too. And to be honest, there's no like magic way of learning composure. It's just experience. I remember in the beginning of when I, like when I first started, I'm a very young concierge. Um, as time progresses, you know, you make more mistakes, you meet more people, you meet more kind of chaotic people as well too. And then you learn how to kind of remedy those situations. You know, you know what works and what doesn't work. And so I think ultimately just composure is, you know, the experience, you know, mistakes are never comfortable. Ideally you will learn from them. I try to see the growth when it happens and it, it takes a lot nowadays to stress me out, at least visibly, you know, I might have a nervous breakdown in, in the bathroom or something like that for like 30 <laughs> seconds, you know, and then I go out and I'm, I'm good again. But most of the time I, I try to keep my composure and be like, yeah, I mean, it's happened before you'll kind of get over it. Yeah. So we're calling you Julian G. We're not using your last name. And we're not naming the extraordinary hotel at which you work. But we can say to our guests that this hotel is kind of a magical place. It's special. I've stepped foot in it a couple of times. Was never a guest, but I did step inside. And it is truly luxurious. Many of your guests really revel in luxury. You are expected to make an extraordinary guest experience for them. You need to pull strings. You need to get things done. Can you 
talk about how to get what you want to get for your VIP guests? It's really a question of experience and time. The most important thing for a concierge, I think, is this network that we have, this kind of like little black book. And I can ass- I assume that there are plenty of concierges that actually do have a tangible little black book where they have all the phone numbers in there, but as, you know, the a, you know, as we progress in in the age of technology, you know, there's more information, more people, there's only so many books you can carry physically with you. So we do have a kind of like digital version of our little black book, and that's where all the contacts are in. Everybody you can call for any kind of situation. Um, and most of the time, if you start out as a concierge, it's really just, you know, slowly progressing through that and getting to know every single person whenever that situation calls for it. And I remember in the beginning as well, too, you don't know anybody, you know, you can kind of guess, you start with Google because you don't really know how to navigate all the information that's in the, you know, our personal system. And then, you know, you, you meet one person who can help you with a restaurant reservation. Then you meet the next person who can help you with tickets. And then, you know, and then you have, might have a really bizarre request. And that's when you really have to start making a lot of phone calls. And it just becomes random. You know, you start with one person who you can trust. And he might have some information for you as well, too. He might have the answer directly. You never know. But ultimately, he, every phone call helps in some way. You always meet somebody or you always figure out who else you could call for a situation and strings to be pulled. I mean, it's really just a question of expanding that network, like almost like the branches of a tree just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, You know, as the years pass on, you almost have a telephone number or an email address for every situation. I also remember when I first started, you know, there are some people who have no idea who you are and you call them and you're like, hey, um, I have two guests, you know, I'm from the hotel, blah, 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 and I have two guests and they want to go to this opera tonight, but the tickets are all sold out in the category that is desired. And, you know, I was wondering if you could help me. And they'll just be like, I have no idea who you are. Who else is there at the concierge right now? And you'll just kind of stutter and be like, I'm the only one. I'm new here. You know, it's a little bit awkward. Yeah. You know, and then it, now, like three years later, it's just simple. You have a request, you call up the guy you always call, and you're like, you know, you exchange a little bit of small talk, you ask him how the family is, and then, you know, you get things done. And be like, I'll call you in 10 minutes, or I'll call you, you know, in a day or whatever. So it's really just about expanding that network, using that network, treating everybody with respect as well, too, you know, never treating anybody, you know, like shit because you never you know you don't burn bridges as a concierge every bridge stays until you have a million bridges that you can always cross to get somewhere it makes it a lot easier to travel and that's kind of how it works you know we just build bridges and bridges and bridges and bridges you know it's a lot of its quid pro quo as well too you know like hey like you do me a favor i'll do you a favor sometime we help each other that's all it is making friends meeting new people and hoping that those people can help you out someday I have to ask, though, what do you do for them in the case where you're trying to get some front row seats at the German opera? Perhaps there's someone who's able to do that for you, but what can you give them? Can I ask you that? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes we help them out with rooms for guests, you know, friends of the family or something like that. We might help them out in some acute situations that I can't really like 
say directly what we help them with. You know, mm-hmm. it's nothing sinister, but the kind of like concierge service that we offer our guests, when the time comes, we might offer that to somebody who helped us out as well too. You know, say they will have a birthday coming up and they want to go to a really nice restaurant and they just, they're not able to get through because some restaurants just don't even give normal people, so to say, an answer. They'll just be like, now nah, we're fully booked. You know, as whereas I call and I know somebody who works in the reservations department or, you know, the owner or something like that, which are all like things that you have to build up over time as well, too. Or they have like an emergency situation and they don't know what to do with something, something as small like, oh, my God, my pants ripped and it's, you know, 10 o'clock at night and I need someone to like stitch them up because I have to go to an event in, you know, an hour or two or something like that. It's, it's very down to earth stuff. It's really just we offer them our service for whatever they provided as well. But most, I would say it doesn't happen all too often, especially if you know the person very, very well, you know, because we're all friends in that regard. Mm. So it's just kind of like being a good friend, you know, you help me, I help you. You know, if you help uh, help a buddy move, you're going to hope that he helps you as well too when you have to move. You know, you never know when it's going to come, but they might call for help or something like that. Do they ever ask you like who it is? Like if you say, hey, look, we have a guest at the hotel it's a very important person. They matter a lot to to me, to our hotel. Do they ever say, who is it? Um, it depends on who I'm talking to. If it's um, <laughs> okay. if it's somebody who's in my direct network, they normally don't care who it's for because for them it's just it's like an interaction and helping me out. If it's somewhere that's maybe where I don't have a, a really good relationship to or I'm still kind of working on it and I'm still trying to build it up, then, you know, if they don't budge with whatever I'm trying to get and they're like, ah, I really can't do that, then I might, you know, like have to drop a name. Sometimes, you know, you have a curious person on the phone who's like, well, who is it, you know? And that might drop a little bit of information that could insinuate who that person is. But unless it's an absolute emergency, I don't tell people the names of anybody. You insinuate that it's George Clooney, but it's really Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had mentioned that on occasion, perhaps even with some frequency, you have what you called uh, bizarre requests. Of course, without naming names, can you give us some instances of some of the more bizarre requests you've uh, been privy to at the concierge desk? It's always weird when people ask me this because I think that like when you spend three years or three plus years at a at a concierge in a luxury hotel, I feel like your your gauge for normality just kind of completely shifted. <laughs> and I'm a Berliner as well too, so like that mixed in as well. It's like it's very little that can shock me. You know, you might get a like out of me but that's about it um but yeah there was definitely a few like requests that i can think of you know like off the top of my head where i was like okay that's gonna be tricky um one of them i remember and this is the thing you have a lot of guests they might be traveling in a larger group might be an important group maybe in the art world or literature or something like that they know that the concierge can do things for you and they sometimes i feel like they don't actually want the service from you they want to kind of like mess with you they want to see like, it's like, oh, you're a concierge, so you have to be good, right? And they'll come up to you. And I had a guy who came up to me. He was really into calligraphy and like typography. And then he asked me if there was a place in Berlin that he could buy a historical typewriter that uses 
the ex- like exact font that is used in a daily newspaper in Germany. It's like an old black letter type font, but he wanted it to be from like you know that era, so like the nineteen you know nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, or something like that. And I stood there and I was just I had no idea where to start on that request. And he just kind of hammered me with all these like weird things. He had his glasses broke, but they were like very specific vintage frames. And he was like, I need a very specific kind of like optometrist that can repair these. Um, And I had gone through a list of like people we've used before and none of those would really work. You know, I have to like send a bunch of people photos of his glasses and they're all like, I have no idea what we can do with that. Or it's going to take a little bit longer because they're like vintage frames or whatever. And so another time... I remember it was Friday, you know, you're looking for, it was one of the few weeks that I had a weekend off as well too, because it's another luxury, um, is having a full weekend off. And I knew that he was a VIP guest, he was coming in with a private transfer and everything. And there's no name dropping or anything, but I do know that he was a Russian oligarch, like straight up, straight out of the movies. And his assistant calls me and he was like, Mr. So-and-so, he's arriving in about 45 minutes and he's interested in buying a Belgian shepherd dog in Berlin. <laughs> And I looked at my, my watch and I was like, it is 5.30, it's Friday, you know, in Germany things stop at one point on Friday. It's like, oh, it's a weekend already, we're all, you know, we're going, we're packing, it's done, you know, whatever it is, leave it for Monday. And then you have this kind of request. I didn't know who to call. I don't, I, that's like one phone number you don't have in your book. You don't have like dog breeders, like <laughs> at least not, not yet. But I had to like call through all these like dog breeders in Berlin to figure out if that was like even a possibility. Like, I mean, you know, even legally speaking, if you could just walk into a place and be like <laughs> buying a Belgian shepherd dog. I mean, it, and then I have to like, I'm Googling and Wikipedia, like shepherd dog species and things like that. And like, I'm learning more about the dog breed itself, but actually not getting further in his request. And at one point I was like somewhere in Brandenburg with some dog breeder. And they're like, yeah, we, we kind of, we do have like one or two of them, but we just kind of like moved them over to a different location and so I was on the right track, and then I guess fortunately that was my cue to go home because I already done like t- you know two hours of overtime. So my colleague was like, "I'll take it over from here." And to be honest, I don't know if he ever got his Belgian Shepherd dog, but that was definitely one of the more intriguing requests that I've gotten. I mean, part of our creed as concierges is you know nothing is impossible. We're not we don't say no directly. It's never like a guest comes up to me and says, "I want so and so and so," and I'd be like, "No," unless it's illegal. So it's, yeah, it's difficult, but we have these, you know, we have once, once in a while we have guests who come in and they really, they, they just want to mess with you. They really pull out all the big guns and I'm like, I'm going to screw with this guy for, for, for a few hours and let him work for me. Yeah. Uh, You had mentioned this Russian oligarch. In your capacity as a concierge at a five-star superior luxury hotel, you work with some real high-end clients. You know, in the end, you provide a high-end luxury customer service experience. But the customer, indeed, despite what some might say, is not always right. In fact, customers can be terribly wrong. But you have to interface with guests who perhaps aren't used to being told they're wrong or it's impossible, they're almost never told no. How do you negotiate all of that with some of your higher-end clients? 
I mean, like with many relationships in life, you know, be it friends or family or or a partner. I think the most important thing is communication. You know, we have plenty of guests, you know, who frequent London or Paris or Dubai, and they're used to like, lavish, extravagant, you know, crystal and gold everywhere, and they don't understand that that doesn't really work in Berlin. And Berlin, I feel, is one of the very few cities. Where no matter how much money you have or who you are, nobody really gives a shit about who you are. And I've had plenty of experiences like that before. Well, you know, you can name drop as much as you want. If that restaurant is booked, that restaurant is booked. And I'm not about to scream at somebody on the phone, you know, because oligarch A is getting impatient or whatever. And so I think communication and really trying to figure out. If they really want this because they want it, or they want it because they feel like they have to have it, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yes, it does. And to kind of like clarify that in the beginning, and that goes back to also just time management for impatient guests as well too. Is like, do you have all these things on your itinerary because you really feel like you need to do it, or because you feel like you have to do it because? You're trying to impress someone back home, or your boss told you to do it, or whatever. And I think kind of like figuring out that from the get-go really helps just set the tone for the whole stay. One thing that really, when I when I think of Berlin and luxury and people not getting their way, I have a lot of really, really, really wealthy guests who call up, you know, they, or they have their travel agents call up or their PAs, and they say, "I have you know so and so guests coming from this and this time, and we want them to have a private table with bottle service." And the Berlin nightclub Berkheim. Yeah, good luck with that. And I'm just just absolutely flabbergasted when that comes in because to explain, Ber- Berlin has a very unique club culture. You know, we don't have this luxurious kind of like bottle service. You can make VIP tables and whatnot here. That does not really exist in that kind of capacity. And if it does, it's not going to be of quality either. But there are certain clubs where, like, there's not even there's not even a phone to call, and so whenever we have this request, and it happens a surprising amount of times too, it's really just like I have to explain to this person, like, I understand that this might not be up to their expectations or their wishes, but unfortunately, that really is a request that can't be done because it doesn't work like that in this city. Hmm. So it's really just sometimes you have to communicate it, and you just have to like bite down on the stick and say, Ugh, "This is going to suck." You know, this is probably not what this person wants to hear. But to just kind of lay it out for them and be like, some things just don't work in this city because Berlin is not a luxurious city. That would work in a city like Hamburg or Dusseldorf or Frankfurt, these kind of like money-strong cities. But Berlin has a very strong anti-culture to everything, anything that's established. And that's why I think that it's it's so interesting to work in a five-star hotel, you know, like a luxury hotel in a city that is so anti-luxury. Yes. You know, it, like I'm always so surprised when I even see like a nice car on the street, like a Rolls-Royce or a Bentley. I'm like, he's got a lot of balls driving that around here because people don't stop and look at it because they're impressed by it. to be like, oh God, he's super bougie or something like that. You know, sometimes you just have to be like, okay, I'm going to have to pull this guy, you know, down from whatever cloud he's on and bring him a little bit to Midgard and level him out a little bit and say like, okay, luxury is a little bit different in this city, you know, boyo. Without being condescending, obviously, with the utmost respect towards who's in front of me. Right. Listen, I feel the heat and the passion in the way you describe Berlin. And though I was not born here, 
My kid was, and I'm proud to raise her here, to the extent to which I can call myself a Berliner. I too am a proud Berliner. And one of the things I think that makes you a proud Berliner is that you do appreciate the class dynamics of this city. You appreciate what this city stands for and what it strives and what it's these days it's fighting tooth and nail to continue to strive to be a city for everyone that aims towards the working class and the middle class. And I know you pride yourself on that, but you're working at this luxury five-star superior hotel and you're tangling with the uber wealthy. Please forgive me if this is too personal, but I'm kind of curious about how your class consciousness interfaces with these clients. Like, just to get a reservation at your hotel requires a certain privilege. Do you find yourself at all begrudging these uber-wealthy guests? Or have you found a way to sort of like not be judgmental and just sort of like help them to enjoy their stay? I guess I just sort of wonder about your feelings vis-a-vis class consciousness and your work. I think in in our realm, you know, when you're you know you're dangling with like the uber you know the uber wealthy. I mean, these people have more money than I can ever imagine. I mean, they'll spend six times my salary over three day periods, and I find myself thinking like, you know, don't even get caught in that vortex of luxury. You know, you see people dressing a certain way, wearing certain watches, driving certain cars. It's really you know I see this a little bit with you know my porters or other employees in the company as well too who are almost trying to adapt to that you know like if i look like them maybe they'll accept me and then you know maybe things will you know be better or whatever but i just find myself trying to like not get pulled in the vortex of luxury so i i i don't think so much that i'm judgmental i think cuz i've also just gotten used to it yeah but sometimes i think i think one of my biggest issues is more of a question of sustainability and and just kind of like the reaction to the environment as well too when you see someone order like a bunch of food like food for you know 10 people and then in the end you know nothing gets really eaten and then you have to throw everything away you know because we can't redistribute things that have already been touched obviously those are the kind of things that get to me a little bit but in general i don't really you know i'm not judgmental about like you know some people just being better off and you know with their credit cards or their bank accounts and you know than I am. The only thing that I find that I do do at work where I have kind of adapted a little bit is that I really care about my presentation. So the only thing that might be luxurious about me at work is the fact that I wear really nice suits and I care about my shoes. And you'd be surprised how many situations can be saved just because a person respected your attire. But that's pretty much like the gist of it. Other than that like you know, the day's over and I hop on my bike and I don't think about the person who just spent 6,000 euros, you know, on a suite or whatever. Mm. It's, you know, I think that can ruin you if you're in that area. That's just kind of like a vortex you don't want to get sucked into. It's, it's, yeah. it's just not healthy because it's just going to drag you down. It's not worth it. Good. I'm glad you created some space around that to prevent from getting sucked into the vortex. And there's nothing wrong with having a good pair of shoes and a slick suit. No judgment here. Hey, if this is 
too personal or otherwise inappropriate, please tell me. But I hope you might talk a little bit about how the tipping system works. Like, what are the subtleties of all that? What are the expectations? What do you do when the expectations are unclear? Yeah, tipping is uh, an interesting topic in the world of the hotellerie in general, um, you know, especially with a concierge. I guess, you know, we don't have expectations. You know, ultimately, I don't do the job because, you know, I expect a tip at the end. Tipping is always really appreciated, but I think it also confuses a lot of like, North American guests as well too because and sometimes they'll like bring it up directly too like I've never broached the topic I'll never be like so let's talk about tip that's not in my vernacular whatsoever but I do have guests who come up and they'll ask me like straight up which is always weird because I feel like I'm selling myself out and I'm not you know being honest um, or selling myself short is maybe better because they'll ask us, so what's this t- tipping situation like? So they'll ask about a restaurant or like how much do I tip in a restaurant or do I tip a tour guide? And they're really trying to figure out also like how to tip me. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of like, I'm always very honest. I always tell them that like, we don't have the same tipping culture that is in the United States. There's no expectation whatsoever because we all get paid, f- you know, fair wages. We all have health insurance, you know, thank God we don't have to worry about those kinds of things, you know, but in the end, yeah, it depends on like what I did for you. You know, if I made a restaurant reservation and it wasn't, you know, a big deal or whatever, like you don't have to tip me 50 or 100 bucks or whatever. You don't even have to give me anything because it's just kind of like doing my job. If I spend, you know, like a whole weekend trying to arrange everything for you, you know, and I'm constantly being called because a lot of guests and this is really important. A lot of guests seem to forget that they're not the only people in the hotel. <laughs> you know, they, they treat you as if, you know, like the whole hotel is just them, you know, and they'll be there every morning, you know, and they'll be there and they'll be asking about like their day and what we have planned for them. And they don't realize that, you know, like I have a, a bunch of other things on my to-do list as well too. And I have, you know, maybe three other guests or I might have 15 or 20, you know, and when you have 20 of those personalities colliding with each other, it gets messy. And sometimes even better than, you know, the greatest tip in the world is simply the company of some of our guests. They can be so lovely that I'm like, I don't care if she leaves, you know, and doesn't give me anything. This was one of the nicest interactions that I've ever had, you know, in the hotel. And I've had that with quite a few guests where you get so close to them and you're really like, you're like, you forget that they're even guests or that you're a concierge. You almost feel like you're just helping them like that because you're friends or whatever. So it's really like there's no expectations is it appreciated? Absolutely. You know, we put a lot of heart, blood, sweat, and tears into it. So any kind of gratitude is always, always appreciated. But there is no, there's no kind of like agreed upon rate. Um, it's really just kind of like how you feel. Were you happy with the service? Then by all means. If not, then I definitely won't accept tip. And I've done that. I've given money back because I was like, I was not happy with my service to you. I'm sorry that that went that way. I can't accept this. Mm. And there's no like weird drug deal kind of interactions where you, you know, you get handed like, you know, hundred euro bills and like weird handshakes or anything like that. Um, it just makes for an awkward interaction. So it's mostly fairly straightforward when you do get tip. There's not a lot of subtlety to it. Can I ask you a couple more questions about tipping? Mm-hmm. If you have one of these really mutually enjoyable interactions with a guest and they, they become kind of like friends. You know, maybe they've stayed 
at the hotel a couple times, you really connect with them as fellow beings. If they tip you, do you feel like that cheapens the interaction? A little bit. I mean, you know, I, I work really hard and, you know, money is money, ultimately. Um, I'm always happy about any kind of, like, supplemental income, you know. I hope German tax authorities and the financial authorities don't listen to this podcast and don't start asking me questions <laughs> about tipping. You know, but, like, yeah, it feels kind of weird. I've gotten so many handwritten letters from guests thanking me, like, really, like, heartfelt letters, you know, that were a page or two long, you know, in a nice envelope, and, you know, and there was money in there. It almost felt like getting, like, a Christmas card or a birthday card from from grandma or something like that. And so, yeah, it kind of feels like a little bit, like it, not degrading, but it feels a little bit like, oh, man, it brings you back to the reality of this being a professional almost transaction. And I think that can make me a little bit sad sometimes. Mm. But ultimately, the in- interaction stayed, and I really just think about you know the person or the people that I was dealing with, and I think, man, that was great. And then there was also a tip at the end. I mean, that's perfect. That's, I mean, you can you can get any better than that. I remember I had this elderly couple and they you know they had been to Berlin before and they were there for like 6 days and they came down every morning just to ask how I was doing and if I had a good night and they asked me like what I was doing over the holidays it was such a beautiful interaction it was so great to see them every time as well too they came down and they had these big smiles you couldn't be in a bad mood when you saw these people and that was that was better than anything and yeah if they don't give you a tip it's like whatever like I love I love it that's that's what you really work for in the end to have that kind of experience with a guest Hmm. It sounds like it's really a conflicted thing for you in a way. And it would make perfect sense to be conflicted because it's a bona fide human connection on one hand. But it's business and a lot of these guests have money to burn. So why shouldn't they burn it on a a young, sweet, clever gent like yourself with nice shoes? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I am desperately curious. I don't know how I've managed to wait this long into the conversation to ask you. It is true that you are a member of Le Clé d'Or, the Society of the Golden Key. Am I right about that? That is correct, yeah. The, the organization that I um, now am a member of is called Le Clé d'Or, the Golden Keys. It's an organization that has a lot of pedigree. It goes back quite a long time. Officially, I think in the 1920s, it was when it was officially established. But it, the job of a concierge goes back way, way further. And so I, whenever people ask me, like, what do you do? You know, because they hear a hotel and they're like, oh, so you're a receptionist. And I'm like, no, I'm a concierge with no disrespect to anybody who works at the front office. But um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a member of this organization, um, and that takes some time as well, too, to become a member of this organization. It is like the, the prime thing that you want to reach. Like if you say you want to become a concierge, that is the ultimate goal in the end, because you have this, you know, this kind of recognition, this visible recognition. You have these two golden keys that are sitting on your lapels. And aside from the fact that it just looks awesome, you know, really, <laughs> you know, spiffies up a suit, you know, it's also just a badge of honor. It's a badge of prestige. It's a badge of respect. It comes with a set of values. It really, when you stand there and you have these golden keys on your lapels, you really, it makes you think a lot more about what you're doing, about what you're going to say, about how you present yourself. And so when people ask me, like, what you do, and I say concierge, and they think receptionist, I always point to the movie The Grand Budapest Hotel, 
And there's this great character, Monsieur Gustave, and he plays a concierge. And a lot of people think that that was just kind of made up for the Wes Anderson film. But the society that is depicted or this organization that's depicted in this film, the, the interactions between the different concierges in the hotels is one-to-one how we talk to other concierges in other countries as well, too. You know, I don't have a mustache yet, but, <laughs> but I'm very, very proud to be a member. You know, it's taken about three years to 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 get into that position, and um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to you know the future as a member of Le Clé d'Or. It's going to be very, very exciting. I'm excited for you, and I'm also excited to tell you that when you and I decided that we were going to use your first name, last initial, Julian G. For this episode, immediately I thought of Monsieur Gustav H. And I'm I'm pretty sure that the title of this episode is going to have to be Monsieur Julian G. <laughs> because how could it not be? <laughs> how could I? How could I not? I love that Wes Anderson movie, by the way. Did it influence your decision to pursue being part of this distinguished, austere society, Le Clé d'Or? I mean, I think it solidified it a little bit because when um, I, off the top of my head, I don't know when that film came out, but I think by the time it had come out, I was already in my apprenticeship and I already had contact to the concierge and I already knew like, okay, this is kind of what I want to do. And it didn't, it definitely like solidified it for sure. And there was actually like an older documentary about the concierge in Berlin. And I saw that and I thought, man, that is so cool. Just walking around the lobby, being kind of like the master of the lobby in this old style uniforms. That's changed a lot. You don't really see that very often anymore. But that really, really inspired me. And the concierge that was depicted, and I can't name the person's name, was actually Thomas Munku, who the, is the the head of the Golden Keys of Germany, essentially. And he's also the head concierge in the Ritz-Carlton in Berlin. And he's a really class guy. So it's really cool that like three years later, I actually got to meet him in person as well, too. You know, and you see this person in the kind of like little mini documentary, and you think, "Wow, that's it's just kind of mind blowing to actually see this person in the flesh and." realize that they're actually a really, really cool person. And that's just kind of like the, the mood that goes through the whole concierge world. Everybody's just super cool. And I was taken up really quickly by everybody. I remember like my assistant head concierge asked me if I wanted to go to a concierge dinner. And I thought we were just going to be, it was going to be him and me just trying out a restaurant, but it was an official gathering of the Golden Keys in Berlin. And I was a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit intimidated. I mean, I was a lot intimidated, (laughs) And just being surrounded by all these people and you aspire to have that position. And I was just like, that was my first actual contact with um, the organization of Le Clé d'Or itself. And that's really just, that really just helped it. It jump-started it, meeting the section leader, meeting the president of, you know, the Golden Keys Germany. And just really being welcomed by it. You know, we say in service through friendship, that's our, that's our motto. And it's absolutely true. It's absolutely palpable. It's not even like propaganda or anything like that. We really do live by that. And it's helped me in a lot of situations in the hotel. There's so many concierges around the world that I've never met in my life. And they have helped me in so many ways with, with guests and just sending them to other cities and like having somebody in that lobby in a foreign country, in a foreign city, being able to help you with the questions that you have. That's our luxury, so to say. And that's what it means to be a, a, a member of Le Clé d'Or, is to have this network of friends around the world that you may, you may meet, you may never meet them, but you know they're there and they, you know that they're going to help you if you need it. And that's, that's a really, really awesome thing. That is awesome. I'm so happy that you found a career that you love and a community 
that you can really cherish. I'm also really grateful that you've been so forthright and, and earnest and open in this conversation, and that should be enough. But my friend, Monsieur Julian G., I have to say, I have to ask you for one more thing. Would you please help me drive this train into the station? Share two stories with me. One story of a professional triumph and the other of a professional failure. And if you would be so kind, let's start with the story of failure so that we could end on a note of triumph. Story of failure. Um, I think one that always strikes me of like failure itself was a failure of communication, which is something that I pride myself and I've spoken so much about the whole time. And that was a moment where I didn't communicate with the guest properly, where you kind of ride the train of assumption and just hope that you know the puzzle pieces will fit together. But that wasn't the case. And while it wasn't a massive failure per se, it was pretty embarrassing. And I remember that we had a guest um, who was on a tour where he had a, he had a really grand stay with us, and he was there with his family and everything like that. And he was one of those people that had like a strict itinerary. And he wanted to do, you know, a tour of the city. He did several tours, actually. And so we found a guide for him, you know, who spoke his native language. You know, and then they were out and about. And I guess they just, you know, they got fairly familiar with each other. And they started making negotiations, you know, with themselves without actually correlating them with me and checking with me if that was okay or letting me know what was happening. And I assumed, like, okay, cool. They're talking to each other. That works out. Um, I'm out of the equation. I don't have to worry about anything. And in the end, it wasn't that way. There were monetary issues. There was money that got lost. There were a lot of embarrassing phone calls that I had to make because I had to say that didn't work out the way it was supposed to. I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. You know, and the worst was just like this guy screamed at me at 10 o'clock in the morning in the lobby in front of everybody. Mm. And he was, I was actually worried that he was going to get like a heart attack because he was so pissed off. And I was just in awe, just standing there trying to keep my composure. And I just thought like, man, this was like a monumental fuck up. <sighs> and I thought to myself, okay, fine. I admit it was my mistake. I should have not pulled myself out of the communication between these two people. And it was my mistake to really be very apathetic about it and just say, okay, great for me. I don't have to worry about them. I can concentrate on everything else. And in the end, people lost money. I was embarrassed by it. I got yelled at in front of everybody. Man, that was that was rough. You know, and I try not to take anything personal because in the end they're just guests, you know, they're people as well too. But yeah, because you're dealing with money, you're dealing a lot of times with a lot of money as well too. And there's been plenty of times where you mess something up and money gets lost, you know, and I've had plenty of times where I've paid out of my own pocket the difference for certain things. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's a pretty penny. So it's, it's always pretty embarrassing when that happens. And when you have to actually pay for it, literally, that's when you kind of realize like, okay, I need to, I need to get it together and really just pay attention next time. As long as you strive to learn from all the mistakes that you make. And that's why I don't have like one monumental failure per se, but it's a lot of a string of failures. And that was really like one of the ones that struck out the most because it was like such an attack, like, on my personality and it wasn't like, you know, somebody being just begrudging and kind of crossing their arms and storming off. It was really like this guy laid me out. Mm. So it was pretty embarrassing. Yeah, man, that sounds like a rough one, but it also sounds like it's clear that you learned a lot from it. So let's try to 
change the tone and content. Pepper me with a success. To kind of touch on communication and learning from mistakes, this was another good example of how something can start off really bad and end up becoming so, so nice. And we had very, 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 very wealthy guests from Texas coming to stay with us for a longer period of time. They kept extending their stay, actually. And there was a lot of communication in advance, a lot of emails. They like this. They don't want that. You know, they want this kind of car. They, they're arriving at this time. Be there. And it was private flight. I mean, we're talking like old money rich. And so the stakes are high. Everybody's on edge because, you know, it's just the pressure was there the whole time. And the arrival was an absolute disaster. It was a disaster. And they get to the hotel and they were so pissed off. It was incredible. Like you couldn't even reach them. It was a palpable energy field around them of just like, get away from me. You've already ruined everything. I can't believe I have to stay here for like another two weeks. And I just kind of like huddled and I thought, okay, man, we have to save this. And then I had my first conversation with with the kind of like leader of the pair. She was the one who was kind of like making all the decisions and the plans and everything like that. I just straight up, I said, I am so sorry that things did not go the way they were supposed to go. And everything was set up and somehow it went wrong anyway. And I am so sorry from the bottom of my heart because they were, they were actually close to checking out again. Hmm. And you have to imagine like that's a lot of money that kind of gets lost because people pay a certain part in advance sometimes. You know, there's deposits and things like that. You know, you kind of expect when someone says, I'm going to book for two weeks, you expect a certain monetary value to come out of that. You're like, you got numbers. They're just not quite there yet until they check out and they, they swipe their credit card. So there was a lot of disappointment in the year. And I just apologized. That shocked her, especially because I was a lot younger than her. You know, I have this young, impressionable man coming up to me and just being like, okay, I'm so sorry. And she had a, a particular request about a restaurant or something like that. And then I made, the, I made a change and I said, I would recommend going there. And she loved it so much that from then on, she was so she was just so impressed by the concierge that we were the only ones allowed to do anything regarding their stay. Really just coming down every single morning just to have a conversation with me. You know, I didn't expect that to happen whatsoever because I really thought we were through. Because I remember when she arrived, she had mentioned my name because it was like I spoke to Julian and he ensured this was gonna happen and this was gonna happen and none of that happened and so on and so forth. You know, there's always a way to save the situation somehow. And sometimes it's, it's really just humility and just being like, I'm so sorry that that didn't work out. Like humbling yourself and kind of almost like going down and saying, I am so, 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 so sorry about this. Yeah, man. That sounds like a story of triumph because ultimately, you know, you set your ego aside, you swallowed the humility pill, and you did what you're committed to doing, which is really creating a special experience for these guests. And I'm sure there were probably moments where she wasn't the most pleasant person in the world, but you wanted her to have a great time while she was in your fair city, a city you love so much. And I respect that. I love the notion of service through friendship. And just as much I love the idea that you fell in love with your job. That brings me tremendous joy. You, sir, 
bring me tremendous joy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's great. Um, I'm very proud of what I do. I'm proud of being a part of this organization. And so I'm glad that you gave me the opportunity to come on here and talk about it a little bit. All right, my friends. That was my conversation with my former student, now an esteemed member of the Clay d'Or, Julian G. Great guy, huh? I told you, splendid conversation. Okay, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, go ahead and tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you, you got the means to give a few. Think about going over to support me at patreon.com slash studs. I hope that you're taking care of you and yours during these funky times. I hope that you find reasons for hope. I hope you find sources of joy. And I can't wait to catch you next week. Please take care, y'all.